Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Over the past half century, globalization and automation have helped push America's GDP higher and higher, but the gains haven't been distributed equally. Economic disruption has left behind manufacturing communities in the Rust Belt, leading some politicians on the right to question open free market economics. We should build walls, physical and metaphorical, to protect American jobs, they say. But today, I'm joined by Glenn Hubbard, who prefers bridges to opportunity over walls. Glenn is a non-resident senior fellow here at the American Enterprise Institute. He's also Dean Emeritus of Columbia Business School and author of The Wall and the Bridge, Fear and Opportunity in Disruption's Wake, released earlier this year. Glenn, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's start with uh, uh, some de- definitions. I mean, this is the title of the book, The Wall and the Bridge, is chosen very specifically. So we'll start with what does it mean to have a bridged base approach to economics? Great question. The things we love about our economy, growth, innovism, dynamism, are like the head side of a coin. The tail of that is disruption. You can't have one without the other. And disruption brings a demand for helping people adapt. And there's two ways to do it. One is walls, literal, or more likely in today's world, figurative ideas from politicians, let's protect you from this, or let's restore you to the past. Another is bridges to what is and can be. Policy falls into those two camps, and uh, the book is really exactly about that. So the U.S. economy since World War II has been a bridge economy, a wall economy, has a sort of Maybe oscillated it's uh, oscillated. between those things. It's oscillated. So let's start at the end of the war. Franklin Roosevelt's GI Bill is a classic example of a bridge. There are two examples of a bridge taking you to something or bringing you back, of course. And the bringing you back is the GI Bill. You have all these service people returning to a changed economy. How do you help them adapt? That's the high water mark. The low water mark are ideas like trade adjustment assistance that might have helped a handful of people, but are small beer in actually helping Americans and communities adapt. So we've gone through both. The problem is my profession in economics and many business leaders are too fond of a letter rip economy without thinking about guardrails that bring everybody along, what my colleague Ned Phelps calls mass flourishing. So where are we right now? If there's been times where we've maybe been a bit more wall-based, maybe sometimes a bit more bridge-based, where are we right now, do you think? We're all about the wall. And so if you think about uh, right and left political campaigns for— There's, wa- there's wall erectors on left and right. Oh, totally. Right. So let's, uh, let's start with the right. Walls could be— uh, physical, like at the Texas-Mexican border. They could be uh, anti-immigrant. They could be anti-trade. They could be slowing down technology's effect on disruption. All of those uh, really slow down all the possibilities for our economy and the very people they claim to protect. The left is no better. So the left has walls of protection saying, you know what, I'm just going to pension you off. 
You don't need to be connected to the economy from work. The book I write is a love letter to Adam Smith across the centuries. And Smith and other Enlightenment thinkers had a view that being connected to the economy, participating in the economy is an important part of dignity. The left misses that and the right forgets it too. Are economists sort of inherently all about bridges rather than about walls? Because when I think of economics and an economy, I think of an economy is people doing stuff together, people connecting, all of us working together. That to me sounds like a bridge concept, a, a concept of connection. So are folks like yourself, are you sort of biased toward bridges? Well, of course. I mean, that, that, the way you described it sounds like the graphics in my freshman economics textbook. We're all, all in this together. I think think economics is getting this right. I think economists, I'm a little more skeptical of. So let me explain that. So economics is all about bridges. So chances are the same Econ 101 professor who told you correctly that technological change and globalization make us better off on average, he or she also probably told you that the gainers could compensate the losers, which is what brings us along. And we haven't really done that. For economists, part of the problem is we spend too much time on the head side of the coin I mentioned. Openness is good. Competition is good. I mean, Smith, Adam Smith himself taught us that. And not enough time on disruption. You know, my wife has always divided the world into two groups, economists and real people. And I think real people hunger for protection if they're not given bridges. So the book is, if nothing else, a pee to economists to get engaged again. Don't let right and left politicians define the world in terms of walls. Oftentimes when I think about policy, I try to figure out which of these policies uh, will generate more economic growth. Well, is it, is it uh, more infrastructure spending? Uh, is it making it easier for women to be in the workforce? Is it is it tax cuts? Is it re- lightening the regulatory burden? But what I think about, I'm constantly thinking about what is good for growth and hopefully growth that 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 helps everybody. And I think a lot of bridge people think the same way. But if you're thinking about walls, aren't you thinking very differently? Aren't you? Don't you have a different conception? of what flourishing is. Maybe that's the debate. What does it mean to have a flourishing life? Well, but this is the problem. I I think the wall proponents, physical or metaphorical, have a view that protection is really the goal. You know, from the Enlightenment thinkers to the present, I think most people view dignity and success in an economy as fully participating in it. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be pensioned off. I wouldn't want somebody to tell me, you you have nothing of value to offer, so I'll simply offer you a check to live. That's not very meaningful. On the other hand, it's not very meaningful if nobody helps invest in me so that I can participate uh, in the in the modern economy. Wall builders, I think, like to pretend that they're a 98 cents on the dollar version of Ecom 101. We'll shave off a little bit of efficiency. What they're really about is corporatism instead of individualism. They're about closed economies instead of open ones. Uh, And they're about protecting firms and industries instead of people and places. And so I I, I think it's a fundamentally wrong thinking. And part of the problem is that the very people that wall builders claim they're trying to protect will be the losers of the walls, not the openness champions. But, you know, openness champions, economists, business people, think tank folks, too, need to step up and explain this and explain what the value of openness is rather than just running away from it. 
in the short term, I guess the answer to this question is yes. Does America seem more fond of walls than bridges? And we can point to the current politics and election. But is there a kind of a longer term trend that may have pushed uh, America into being more sort of pro wall, whether it's uh, the financial crisis, whether it's the so-called China trade shock, has America just become sort of, I guess another way of asking this, has become more uh, risk averse over the decades? I think there's a good chance of that. You certainly see it in declines in geographic mobility of people moving to opportunity. And the way I would explain it is that for too long, economic elites and policy elites have forgotten about disruption. You know, the structural changes that have brought us growth miracles uh, since the Second World War have also brought phenomenal destruction and uh, destruction of some kinds of jobs in some places, and we're simply not paying attention to it. That feeds the demand for walls and feeds the demand for protection. And I think it's time for business people and economists to realize social support for the economic system isn't given. You know, when Adam Smith talked about competition, that was 1776, and it was a simpler time. But if he were here today, I think he would also talk about the ability to compete. We once invested in making people able to compete. I think a lot of Americans are skeptical today that we still care. I think, whether we call them wall builders or populists, will also make this argument, that even on your own terms, you've you failed. You've absolutely failed that we've seen the economy stagnate for, for decades. People are no better off than they were in the 70s. Incomes have stagnated. Incomes for, for men have stagnated. Uh, we haven't seen a lot of productivity growth. So even if we accept your, your sort of go-go creative destruction, but we're going to help people on the other side, that the creative part has not worked. So if that's not working, if we're not, if we're not getting that, then what, what, are, what are we even doing here? There you go again. <laughs> no, I, I don't think that's right. I, I think what is right— It may be an is, argument you've heard. Well, <laughs> many times. And, and frankly, it's not a bad one, except I think the real finger, when I was trying to make the distinction between economics and economists, economics really does have the answers here. Economists, I think, have been too glib about embracing pure neoliberalism, no guardrails on the economy, let her rip, rising tide lifts all boats, without stepping back and saying, what are we doing for people and communities? The problem with trying the alternative is down that road lies statism for all the reasons that economists have said for decades. So I, I think the candle still needs to be lit for bridges and mass flourishing, but economists need to step up and actually notice first. I, I've heard this argument that if you're thinking about the economic good of a nation, you can't measure it in consumption, how much you know, how much stuff we can buy, how much services we can consume, but rather in something called good jobs. That what you're, you're talking about is, is about consumption. That's how you're viewing us as, as consumers. But we're about a lot more than that. And, and a key, again, talking about the dignity of work, is is a job and that a good job is more important and that should be the focus of policy. Uh, again, is that an argument you've heard? And maybe you could tell oh, me a little bit more about what it, well, what's, what's many, a good job and what it provides and doesn't. Many times, you know, we have to remember that Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations in response to mercantilism, which is a warmed over version of that kind of argument that we need to protect certain kinds of jobs and industries and certain kinds of trade patterns. Uh, Smith believed, and 
virtually any serious economist since has believed that consumption of average people is the standard by which an economy gets measured, not the mercantilist reverence for guilds or for the sovereign. Now, it could be this now fashionable argument means that every economist Smith is wrong, dot, 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 or it could mean that it's fatuous. And it's fatuous. And, and the reason is this. We want an economy that's dynamic. Many jobs that are great today didn't even exist 30 or 40 years ago. So if we'd had a, a goal 30 or 40 years ago to protect current jobs against new jobs, we wouldn't even have them. And it raises the classic question. I always bungle my high school Latin, so I'll say it in English, of who watches the watchers? Who gets to decide uh, which job is a good job or which wage is a good wage or which condition is a good condition. So I, I think it's, it's wrongheaded. A better alternative to that well-meaning goal is to give people and communities the skills they need, a la what we used to do in the land-grant colleges or the GI Bill or I have more contemporary examples in the book, to succeed today. That is better than protecting jobs. Is it possible to make this uh, this argument, this argument about um, about building a wall, about sort of protecting jobs, if you're not also making an argument about economic history? That don't you have to say that? Well, we've been failing for 50 years because if we have, well, then maybe it makes sense. Maybe we should protect these jobs because all your all the uh, all your entrepreneurship and skills. Well, we've been doing that, and it hasn't produced a great economy. So that's what I find very interesting that people who maybe in their youth, they loved Ronald Reagan. Maybe they loved Ronald Reagan. Maybe they still do. But these are also the same people who are saying that uh, we, need to, we need to protect current jobs. We need to keep immigrants out. We need to uh, put up trade barriers. But aren't you also saying then that, well, I guess— Reagan failed too. All that, all that, all that great openness that Reagan, that must not have worked. No, I, I don't think that's fair. I, I think if Smith were here, he would say what you want in the modern economy is all in, in two senses of the word. That I'm all in. I, Glenn Hubbard, am able to be attached to and participate in the economy, and also that we're all in. That is, that there's mass flourishing. There's a chance for everybody to connect. Wall building doesn't succeed there. I would push back on the idea that the economy of the last several decades has not succeeded. It has wildly in that's macro that, terms. That's an argument you've heard. I mean, that, I, used to only, I used to only hear what, the argument from folks on the left. Now I hear from it from the well, populists on the what, right. What you hear from populists on the right is it may have succeeded on average, but it didn't succeed for everyone. I would agree. And I think the answer is not to go back to neoliberalism, nor is the answer to build walls. The answer is to put the liberal back in neoliberalism, in the classic liberal, Smith liberal sense of the term. And that really is about bridge building. So I, I think that even though we have legitimate distributional concerns in the economy, the answer cannot be protection. Down that road lies failure for the same reason Smith said in 1776. In the book, uh, you talk about Youngstown, visiting Youngstown. How do you make this argument to folks there? What's very interesting, I, I picked Youngstown in consultation with some political friends in Ohio about where I could take MBA students to a place that still has a lot of dynamic spirit but had been through hard times. Youngstown, it's very interesting. September 19th, 1977, all the big integrated steel mills closed without warning in one day. 
Now, that's a long time ago. The shock was principally about technological change, the advantage of mini mills and so on, but it was also about globalization. Since that time, people have struggled in Youngstown. It's not that things have rebounded. The population is a fraction of what it was. My students who were from New York City were marveling at house prices, you know, that are so low <laughs> compared to, you know, a rat-infested walk-up in right. New York. Uh, and that is a problem. And I think what it teaches us is that places and people need help. Now, people in Youngstown, it turns out, get that. They are all about trying to figure out new skills, um, new ways to help their place come back. There's a lot of success in recent Youngstown, which I, I talk about in the book. And around our country, you know, some cities and places have revived, others have not. And that means that any assistance needs to take into account local differences. We shouldn't have Washington say, here's a one-size-fits-all way of fixing the country. That's wrong. That's not the way our successful interventions in the past worked, and that's not what we should do here. Uh that's interesting. The places that have revived, is there a revival, even if it's broad and you have to tailor it, is there a revival formula? Or are, have the places that have revived, it has just sort of been happenstance? Things you couldn't have imagined uh, sort of came together and no politician could have even put in a plan. Is there, are those places just kind of got lucky? Or is there like a formula, even in broad terms, that you could apply to different places? Formula makes it sound precise, but yes. there is an approach. And I, and I think this is probably the only time I'll refer to Hillary Clinton in our conversation, but it takes a village. And, and the kind of village that I mean here is um, business people taking lead roles along with educational institutions and local politicians. So let me give you two tangible examples. Pittsburgh, after World War II, already saw the handwriting on the wall for the future of the steel industry Local business leaders partnering with educational leaders said, we're going to turn this ship. It's going to take decades, but we're going to do it. And Pittsburgh did. Massachusetts, throughout much of the 20th century, did not try to bring mills back. That wasn't the goal. The goal was to reinvent Massachusetts for the modern economy. That, too, was led by business people, although with some help from educational leaders and local politicians. I argue in the book that some forms of place-based aid from the federal government can help, but only if they're in concert with what local business people and local political leaders are trying to do. So there's no formula in the sense that do this and you will succeed, but this kind of approach of leaders coming together is necessary if not sufficient. Was it a mistake opening to China? We'll put the geopolitics aside, but just... From an economic point of view, adding all those workers to the global labor market, should we not have done it? Should have been much, it should have been a slower process. Could it have not been a shock, I guess is what I'm saying. Well, it's definitely a shock. And that's why your question is so important, because it was very long lasting. It happened faster than people thought. And its impacts are very geographically concentrated. So that's really a recipe for people feeling it and for the political process reflecting it. I think in retrospect, what was missing was not doing the basic economic thinking that your question just did. Like what would happen in the world economy if we suddenly dumped 
a lot of skilled and semi-skilled labor into the global labor market that hadn't been there before? And what if we completely changed international capital markets at the same time? Remember, uh, more than a decade after the China shock came India's integration as well into the modern economy. So these are very big deals. And I think the issue is not should we shut out China, I'll come back to that in a moment, but more should we uh, have thought about it more for Americans and helped people be ready to compete, supported work more, and got people better prepared. Another problem with China is that I think economists, myself included, were too glib at the time about China's integration into the economy and behaving by World Trade Organization rules. They have not. I mean, to me, there's a real question today whether China belongs in the World Trade Organization. That's a separate question. But I think the real issue for policymakers is we didn't think through the effects and prepare people for them. And it reminds me of a story I tell in the book in the context of the financial crisis. You know, when the Queen of England asked all these famous economists, <laughs> why did nobody notice? I mean, she was asking about the financial crisis. You know, if the Queen had asked about China here, she could say, like, you guys all got PhDs and you you missed this? I think that's a legitimate question. Uh, since, we, since we brought up uh, China, there are some people who probably would consider themselves pro-bridge. You're like, I don't want to build a wall around America. I'd kind of like to build one around China. Should we you know, hold China to a different standard at all? Everything we've been saying about bridges and connection and all the benefits, that China is a big exception to the rule. Again, whether it's because they don't play by the economic rules, whether we're worried about them geopolitically, that maybe some sort of new Cold War, even though it would have to be different because they're a much bigger part of the global economy than the Soviet Union ever was, that, that, that your, 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 your metaphor does not apply to them. Well, I wouldn't say it's about China, but there are exceptions that are important. Obviously, to the extent that national security is a concern, policy needs to differ. Going back to the wealth of nations, that's been an argument from economics. And if China is not going to play by the ground rules of the World Trade Organization, it shouldn't be able to participate in the benefits of the World Trade Organization. I don't think that's building walls. What's building walls is saying that we're going to have blanket tariffs or protection of industries, by the way, not only against China, but against Canada uh, and the European Union. That, that's the mistake. So I think the issue is to focus on behavior, not names of countries. We've, we've talked about both you know, left and right, but a lot of this is lately has been in the context of the Republican Party and about conservatism and them moving away from more market-oriented policies. Is there a, is there sort of a road to a more, uh, a more bridge-building ethos uh, on, the, on the right? You know, I, I think it's easy and hard. Let me start with the easy part. The ideas are very straightforward. The policies I outline in the book are very specific and, frankly, have been suggested by leaders in both parties. Everybody from Paul Ryan to Barack Obama would agree with much of what I put in the book. The hard part is I think politicians on both sides have gotten themselves pretty dug in on wall arguments. And so it really is going to take the emergence of a leader, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, who goes back to that all-in analogy. How do we have an economy that enables me as a person to be all-in but also enables all of us to be in? I don't see him or her out there. I hope they're there somewhere, but that's what it's going to take. Uh, I don't know how much time you spend on Twitter. I spend too much time on Twitter. 
And the argument I hear a lot is, uh, is that we are, we are experiencing something called late capitalism. Something else has to come next. Is there an image of tomorrow that you can present to people that fits with your views that they'll find compelling? They're like, yes, all the disruption and the potential for jobs and companies, even communities to be disrupted, it'll all be worth it because this is the kind of tomorrow that we can get. What does that tomorrow look like? Well, first, let me go back to the beginning of your question. You know, those folks ought to go back to the late 19th century where I might have been able to make some of the same arguments and we're still here. Schumpeter worried about the demise of capitalism for those kinds of arguments and for the fact that intellectuals might eat our seed corn. He may have been a little bit more right on that on that point. But I think if you ask yourself about success, one reason we still have a successful capitalist economy in our country is it has adapted. You know, I mentioned the example of land-grant colleges. You know, in the middle of the Civil War, Lincoln is able to pull off land-grant colleges, the Homestead Act, and the Transcontinental Railroad. And he did that as a way of using government as a battering ram for opportunity. We had a progressive movement early in the 20th century. We had social insurance reforms. We've tended to be pretty good at adaptation. What I worry about today is that the structural changes have come so fast and are so long-lasting. And by the way, they're going to get bigger with artificial intelligence and robotics and adaptation to climate change that our political system may have an even tougher time than it did in the 19th century and and maybe in the mid-20th century. So we have done this. That's the good news. So we have been able to pivot. But today, I think it's hard. Glenn, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. My pleasure.